0: You're listening to Conversation with the Experts, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hello, my name is Steve Lacey and I'm the Allied Health Education Fellow in the RCH Education Hub. I also work as a tutor radiographer in medical imaging at RCH. It's a fairly unknown disorder, and whilst most of us may not even have heard of it, some of us may have at least heard of the term neurofibromatosis. This term describes a group of disorders including NF1, NF2 and schwannomatosis, with NF1 being by far the most common. Now, I must admit that until recently I had heard of neurofibromatosis, but I didn't really appreciate what it was. But someone that knows a lot about neurofibromatosis is RCH neurologist, Dr. Gabriel Dabszczek, and he joins me today. Gabriel, thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me, Steve.
0: Well, I think we'll probably stick with NF1 because that's probably the most common one, I assume. Would I be right to assume that? Yeah, by about a factor of 10. So yes, it is. Yep. So we're going to focus on that for today's discussion. Just in a nutshell, tell us what it is.
1: So NF1 is a neurogenetic condition, which predisposes the sufferer from having tumors on any nerve in their body. Yeah. It affects about one in two and a half to one in 3,000 people. Yeah. But half of them inherit the pathogenic variant, which was used to be called mutation from their parent and about half of them have a new variant that happens in embryogenesis yeah it's a condition where the most frequent complication we see is some trouble with learning and behavior in childhood about two-thirds of of kids with nf1 have some difficulties at school and you have a predisposition to to different types of tumors at, at different ages in your life yeah okay And
0: how is it different to NF2 and schwannomatosis? Am I pronouncing that correctly?
1: So that's correct. (laughs) Well, they renamed NF2 to NF2-related schwannomatosis a couple of years ago. But with schwannomatosis, the actual tumors have a different histological or biological basis, and the mutations causing them are in different spots in the genome. They're essentially completely different conditions that just share a name.
0: Yeah, right. Okay. So it's all like, it, I mean, obviously this is all, all genetics um, in some way, shape or form. When was it discovered that this was a genetic condition?
1: It's been known to be a genetic condition for most of last century and this century as well. Yeah. Uh, the gene was discovered in the 70s or 80s, the neurofibromin gene. Yep. And so it's been known because of the autosomal dominant, the way it's inherited, that you inherited it from one parent. Um, that has been genetic for a long time. And the implications of that have become much more important as the years have gone by and medical technology has improved. Yeah. So I can just expand on that if you want. Yeah, absolutely. So the fact that you inherit it from one parent means that if you have NF1 and you're a, a woman or a man in their childbearing years and you have had a rough course or you know people with NF1 that have had a rough course... You don't necessarily have to have a child with NF1. Mm-hmm. So there are, you know, there are technologies available, including um, IVF and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Yeah. You can choose to implant an embryo that doesn't have NF1. Yeah. So you can decide that you don't want children with NF1. So, you know, the fact that it's that the genes known about, that we know the way it's inherited, has some significant management implications for today's patients.
0: So it sounds like then that it's come quite a long way. Like if we're talking about the seventies or eighties, and then you think about where we're kind of at, where you can actually almost choose to, to disregard that, you know, passing that gene on in some way, then it's kind of really come a long way.
1: Yeah. It's at least in my career, it's the implications of knowing the genetic cause of really it hasn't been transformational yet, but we expect there to be some reasonably transformational advances over the next decade or so. And um, the fact that th- there are targeted therapies for some of the tumors, which are based on the, the fact that we know that the mutation causes a problem with the neurofibromin gene. Yeah. And that leads to an overactive pathway that makes the tumor grow. And the, the targeted therapies, they stop or they act as a block on that pathway, and that are effective. That's all come on board in the last uh, five to seven years. Yeah, the field itself has changed with advances in medicine in general. Yeah, over the past few decades.
0: Okay, and as far as the genetics is concerned, is are we talking of a uh, like a autosomal dominant, recessive?
1: It's a it's a dominant condition. Yeah, that you inherit. Um, a pathogenic variant on one of your NF1 genes. Yeah. NF1 codes for neurofibromin. And neurofibromin acts as a break on the RAS-MAPK pathway, which is necessary for cellular growth and replication.
0: Okay. I assume then being a dominant, then it's quite a,
1: a high likelihood then of passing it on to children then. And so we say it's 50%. It's like flipping a coin. Yeah, okay. So I guess if you looked across a big enough population, it is 50%. So every now and then you come across a kindred where there's eight kids and all of them have NF1. Mm. So clearly there are other factors at play. Mm. And it's, a bit, it's outside my understanding why that happens. Yeah. But ge- but generally it's about 50% and that's generally what we see in clinic.
0: Yeah, okay. So let's talk now about then how NF1 kind of affects the body and there's obviously a lot of different features that occur with NF1. What are some of these major features that we'd be talking about?
1: I like to think of NF1 as a condition that affects uh, our patients at different ages, at different stages. Yeah. So in young children, the things we really focus on is making sure that their vision is good and the development's appropriate. We know that roughly about one in five kids with NF1 will develop an optic pathway tumor. That's a tumor at the back of the eye. Yeah. But only a fraction of them are going to require treatment. Okay, So it's really important that we get our patients assessed by the ophthalmologists and the orthoptists and in the community, the optometrists, um, to make sure that their visual pathways are developing appropriately and that they, their acuity is good. So we do that at set points every six months until six years of age.
0: Okay, from birth, basically. From birth. So yeah, right. you're,
1: you're at a peak risk period in the first few years of life. Yeah. So really, it'd be unusual to develop an optic pathway tumour that causes symptoms after your sixth birthday. So we really focus on that in those preschool and early primary school years.
0: Right, okay. And then what else What else are we looking also at? So
1: the other thing in that early age is development because we know that two-thirds of kids have difficulties at school. Yeah. And it's areas... Uh, like attention, executive function, verbal memory. If you look at a group of children with NF1, their IQ is five to 10 points below the medium. Yeah. As opposed to the general population where it's 100, it's around that 95 level. Okay. So we, and we know where the weaknesses lie. So we, we aim to have these, these children assessed and to have the necessary interventions at school.
0: Yeah. Okay. And I I have heard that the the children or anyone really I guess we, with neurofibromatosis or NF one would have the cafe au lais as well. Yeah, so the can you,
1: hallmark. Can you Describe those. The hallmark is the the cafe au lais. Yeah, and they they're like a coffee colored birthmark. More than ninety nine percent of patients with NF one will have more than six. So in the general population, about twenty percent of everyone out there as one to three of the cafeolays. Yeah. So it's not unusual to have a few. Mm. Like a lot of people I know have a few cafeolays, mm. but to have more than 6 puts you into a different category and that's one of the diagnostic criteria of NF1.
0: Right. How does that link then with the, with the gene and with the NF1?
1: Well, if you think about every manifestation of NF1, it's caused by the genetics of it. So we know that Everyone with NF1 has one pathogenic variant or a spelling mistake in one of the genes. So one of the proteins, that doesn't work properly. Every manifestation, aside from what we understand about the learning issues, Mm. are caused by having a mutation in the other copy. So every cell that we have has two copies of every gene, one from mom, one from dad.
0: Yeah.
1: So if you're born with NF1, every skin cell you have has a, a copy of NF, which has a spelling mistake in it. And then just because skin cells, they divide, they replicate, they do their thing, there are acquired second mutations. Okay. So the second mutation will cause the cafe au lait. If you find someone with NF1 and you analyze every mutation on every cafe au lait macule, every individual cafe au lait macule, the second spelling mistake will be different. It's not caused by the first spelling mistake, but it's the second spelling mistake. Because just because these people are... They're born with one hit. This means that they acquire the second hit more often. Yeah. Whereas that 20% of the population that have one to three cafe las they just haven't had enough time to get two hits. Yeah. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So if you, you know, if, if we live to 500, yeah, probably would have enough time to get more hits. Yeah. Because, you know, your cells replicate that often. Yeah. The people with NF1 are born... With a predisposition because they've already had one hit. Mm, does that make sense? Mm, it does. So, but, yeah. so if you look at any any of the manifestations of NF1 are caused by a loss of the second hit, then that speaks to the the soft tissue tumors, the plexiform neurofibromas. Yeah. The first mutate the first mutation is the one they're born with, and the second one is a loss of the whole gene, all the NF gene, on the second copy. And that yeah. leads to the development of a plexiform neurofibroma. Right. Now the neurofibromas are they're lumps. So you can get lumps on your skin, you can get them anywhere in your body. And the ordinary, the the simple neurofibromas are just caused by a small spelling mistake. Whereas the plexiforms, which are bigger ones that travel down nerves, they're caused by a whole gene loss on the second hit. Right. Even the brain tumors, the 2nd they've had a second hit as well, and they've lost a copy of the NF gene.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Since it's genetic... Do you need genetic
1: testing to definitively diagnose NF1? The answer to that's no. Uh, The NIH, uh, the diagnostic criteria, until a couple of years ago, they didn't include genetic testing. Mm -hmm. So you needed to have two of the diagnostic criteria to meet a diagnosis of NF1. Um, And... I can go through the diagnostic criteria for you if you want. I might might miss out on a few because I I didn't write them down. (laughs) Um, So you need six or more cafe macules. You need neurofibromas, plexiform neurofibromas, an optic pathway glioma, leash nodule, family history of NF1, a characteristic bony lesion with NF1, and as of two years ago, a genetic test as well. You have to have two of them. Or
0: two out of, all two of out those two out of
1: two okay. out of those diagnostic criteria to yeah. be, oh, I, the one I didn't say was freckling so you can have freckles in your armpits or in your groin yeah where the sun doesn't shine yeah are uh, there also diagnostic criteria a couple of years ago the diagnostic criteria changed to include a genetic test and that was both as a recognition of the fact that the genetic tests are very good
0: mm.
1: and it's also so people can be diagnosed in the first year of life we often only have one of the diagnostic criteria yeah so we see a lot of patients who have 10 cafe la macules and they're six months old and it's like you haven't got a second criteria yet so you don't have one but we know as time passes you gain extra criteria yeah and there have been papers looking into this that this some of the eye changes are not present until you you're closer to, to 10 years of age yeah
0: yeah i was going to ask so do you do you ever get anyone that? That is like an adult and has not been diagnosed before, and then all of a um, sudden they get so, diagnosed.
1: So, I know of one family where the, the child was diagnosed and the mum was subsequently diagnosed. Right. I know one person. I know lots of stories like this. Yeah. That often you end up diagnosing the parent, the older sibling, after the 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 child or the index case is diagnosed. Well, I don't see it a lot. Um, I think it's because just there's been more knowledge and more mm. recognition. Mm. And also, often by the time they've seen me, they've seen a few other people as well. Mm,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it can be diagnosed then by a GP as long as they use this kind of criteria. Then, right?
1: Yeah. So if someone comes in with more than six café au lait macules, and then they or they have a um, some lumps and bumps, that's what you should be thinking of. But like mm. there's, you know, I, I wouldn't criticise anyone for missing a diagnosis, especially a busy GP who has to be across so much information. Yeah. It's just a question of, do you want to be the person to make the diagnosis? Because there are implications with that. And that is having a long conversation about, ma- about management and prognosis. Mm-hmm. So often people come to clinic and there's a, you know, they have nf F one, you can read the letter, but it's like they haven't been, in diagnosed commas, diagnosed. It's because yeah. no one's been the, happy to be the person to sit down and talk about what it actually means, what it means for them, their future and their family.
0: Just like a, a high suspicion, I guess.
1: Yeah, like the, the, that's the kind of language they come in with yeah. in the in the referral letter.
0: Yeah, yeah, okay. And then once the GP either diagnoses or has that high suspicion, then they will obviously refer to, say,
1: I guess is there a neurofibromatosis clinic? So, for, so there is a neurofibromatosis clinic. and We've been running for about nine years, give or take, here yeah. in Melbourne. There's a similar service in Sydney. Um, the other states, it's a bit more ad hoc. The usual referral pathway is that there's the GP or the family member recognises CAFLA. They end up, often end up at a paediatrician, which is probably the most important person for these kids yeah. because we know they have difficulties at school yeah. and uh, with, with uh, learning and organisational things. They're often best man- co-managed with the paediatrician and then they will be, end up in our clinic mm-hmm. or they'll come by the genetic services because the family's been known to the genetic services for a number of years. Yeah, yeah. How many people are in... Your clinic. We're a little bit busy. Yeah. And we have more than 500 patients under wow. our care at the moment. And so we do, we here at the Children's Hospital, we manage them until they they finish high school, at yeah. which point we graduate them to the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Yeah. Uh, and the clinic there is run by Professor Kate Drummond, who's the head of neurosurgery. If you look at the numbers, it works out that there are about somewhere between 20 and 30 kids born every year with NF1, just mm-hmm. with that one in two and a half to 3,000, some between 70 and 100,000 live births. Which means that in every age bracket there's thirty people. Yeah. So if you're doing a successful if you do, if you're running your clinic well, as in getting everyone, eighty percent. Yeah. It's you get six hundred patients before twenty. So we're almost there. Like we we know we're missing some patients. We yeah. know we're missing about a fifth quarter. These patients live until their sixties. I really feel for Professor Drummond and how she manages her service because there's a massive patient cohort out there that yeah, she's, there she's managing.
0: And that's only Royal Melbourne that then yeah, subsequently so, get them.
1: So Kate's clinic started three years after our clinic, two or three years, in that we were we had all these patients that we didn't know where to send them, mm. and Evelyn, who runs a transition service here, organized a meeting between me and Kate, and Kate said she'd take this on, this, this the, the clinical responsibility of running it, and now she's running a very busy clinic. Mm. Mm, good on her. That's off, <laughs> for sure.
0: <laughs> Let's imagine then that you have a patient- a young patient, like a baby, for example, who has just been diagnosed with NF1, what's going to be in store for them as far as hospital or clinic visits go? So we typically try to keep clinic visits
1: to about annually, mm-hmm. unless something urgent pops up. The way we're structured our clinic is to be a one-stop shop. So they can come to clinic and they can see me, and I'm a neurologist by training. In the NF clinic, I just function as the general NF person mm-hmm. that I trained in in NF while I was abroad in America. and so. I just know about the condition and the needs of this patient group. So they see me, I've got a general pediatrician in clinic. If they don't, if they haven't got a general pediatrician in the community um, for learning development behavior issues, mm-hmm. I've got a genetic counselor and, and a geneticist. Yeah. So if they need genetic counseling or if the geneticist needs to, if there's a question about the diagnosis or so there could be two diagnoses, um, we know that about half our patient cohort has a plexiform neurofibroma and they're the, the bigger lesions, the, the bigger lumps and bumps, mm. and they can cause disfigurement. They can cause some cosmetic burden. They can look ugly. So they might need an operation or they be, could be causing pain. I've got, yeah. a, I've got a plastic surgeon in the clinic, got same day eye reviews, because we want these children before the age of six to have six monthly eye reviews and after that 12 monthly eye reviews. Um, I've also got a, a a nurse coordinator, Kylie, who looks after these patients so they can see all of us potentially in the one day. We're also well linked into the neuropsychology service at the Murdoch. Yeah. Which are primarily a research group, but they offer a great clinical service to our patients with NF1. And they do comprehensive learning assessments for our patient load. Yeah. And they generate these fabulous reports that they'll take to school so they can get the, the, the best out of their learning experience. Yeah. But it can be a very busy clinic. They can see four or five different people. Yeah. Um, over the day. It generally works pretty well. It does require a lot of work by the nurse coordinator to coordinate and make sure everything happens. Most of the feedback is very positive. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And when we had our first discussion um, before recording today's podcast, you described one thing I really liked was that you described your clinics as being like an elevator for the patients. And you're hoping to see people with NF1 at every floor on their journey. So basically they are saying that life is like an elevator ride and that every floor is one year in their journey or whatever, and that you're hoping to kind of catch them for every year. What's the reasoning behind the yearly visits and what is it that you're actually trying to capture?
1: So we know, we know that, you know, as I, I said before, that you have different complications, at different ages. Mm. So it's like growing up, like, you know, you, you have developmental tasks at every age, And in NF, you have the same developmental tasks, but just a few risks and a few vulnerabilities. Yeah. So you want to catch those kids early if they have any um, problems with their vision so they can be treated. Yeah. You want to catch the kids who are going to have learning difficulties early so they can have interventions at school. We monitor blood pressure because we know that the rate of high blood pressure in NF1 is twice the rate of, of children without NF1. We, we look at their backs because we know that the rates of scoliosis are about 20%, which is significantly higher than the baseline rate. Yeah. And all these little complications we look at every year, they're not particularly onerous or particularly challenging. It's just something that's in our skill set that we look at to try to catch things early so, we can, so the intervention can be early, effective, and can work. Mm-hmm.
0: And then kind of moving on then to treatments then, what are some of the common treatments that are required for NF patients?
1: I guess you could approach it different ways. If you look at the tumors, so the, the little lumps and bumps, the simple neurofibromas, they only cause problems if they're unsightly or the patient doesn't like the look of them mm-hmm. or if they're causing pain. So we in Melbourne, we use a plastic surgeon. At different clinics, there are different specialties that do this mm-hmm. that can remove some of the, the simple neurofibromas if required. If you get a bigger tumor, a bigger plexiform neurofibroma, it can cause more disfigurement. And that, again, we have a plastic surgeon for that. It can impinge on or can compress a major organ. And then we can we, we involve the necessary surgical specialties. Yeah. So for the past seven years, there's been a medical therapy that can shrink the tumors. And often we'll either manage these patients or co-manage them with oncology. A small percentage of patients with NF1 get brain tumors or optic pathway tumors, which are essentially just low-grade brain tumors that require medical therapy as well. Right. And occasionally someone has a a low-grade brain tumor that's removed by the neurosurgeons requires an operation. Yeah. Okay.
0: And what happens to someone who has NF1 and they want to have their own children then, is there anything
1: specific for them that might need to happen? If you have NF1 and you want to have your own children, there's a one in two chance that your child will have NF1. Mm. That's the baseline figure. Mm. So, for some patients with NF1, they'll take uh, that, that risk is fine because their experience of NF1 has been not necessarily a negative one. For some people, it's the kind of risk that they won't take because their experience with NF1 has been challenging and they don't want to have a child with NF1 and watch their child go through what they experienced. Yeah. So, for that patient population, you send them to the genetic counselors that offer IVF with pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Yeah, like
0: what we talked about before, yeah.
1: Yeah, and so you can take that risk down to a, approximately zero. But that comes at a cost. It comes at a cost. Yep. There are Medicare rebates for it, but they don't meet the full cost of the service. Right. Um, but it's a, it's something that our adult colleagues have spent a lot of time looking into. Well, it's clear who should meet that cost because you when know, you think your obligations as a community it should be met by the taxpayer. Yeah. But I don't think the Medicare rebates and the whole IVF system is structured to make that happen.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think that's still got a long way to go as well, to be honest.
0: Gabriel, look, thanks very much for taking the time to come in and speak with me about this. I feel like I really know a lot more about this now, which is really good. And it actually helps me in my own work too. Have you got any specific advice for some clinicians who might ac- come across patients with NF1 or are treating them? So-
1: my advice would be that there are a lot of guidelines out there. We've co-written some GP guidelines. Um, all the like I use uptodate.com, uh, which is a, essentially an online medical encyclopedia. Mm. They're constantly revising and rewriting their guidelines. But if you're stuck out in the middle of nowhere and you see a patient with NF1 and you don't know what to do, you could just look it up in one of the online guidelines because yeah. the management and the surveillance is... Uh, reasonably prescriptive, and it's just around the edges is what we do in the clinic. That's a little bit different than it, than a GP or a paediatrician does, and we just have access to more resources, which mm. makes managing the complications a whole lot easier.
0: Mm. Would you then recommend that that they send them to you?
1: Uh, so we we have created a model where we've said we want to see every patient with NF one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which may or may not be sustainable.
0: So you don't want to go up to a thousand patients a year.
1: <laughs> so at the moment, we've always said we'll see anyone with nF1. yeah um, I know my adult colleagues are starting to shift to a model where they'll they'll only see more complicated patients with NF1 with a set of different criteria about what those complications are. but mm. um, I don't think at least here at the children's hospital, we're not um, at that point yet.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's
1: fantastic. Thanks Gabriel for joining us thank you for your time.
0: Thanks for listening to Conversation with the Experts, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Teach, Think, Treat, where we discuss aspects related to teaching and learning in a busy clinical setting.